Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, everyone. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Drew, and I am actually the transitional pastor here at Hope Brooklyn. Uh, The last time I was actually here live in this space, I said, you are not going to see me for a long time. It turned out to be three weeks. And so uh, here I am, so glad to be here. If I haven't met you yet, uh, welcome. Hope you can join us for the Newcomers Brunch. And for those of you who are coming back to our in-person gatherings, welcome. So glad you made it out today. Uh, Today we're actually taking a break from our normal message series, which has really been in the wisdom literature. But today, we're actually going to be exploring this idea of good news for Brooklyn. Uh, We're actually in a season right now in the city of uh, what my friend calls the greatest modern reset of New York City history. And uh, I think that's an exciting proposition. And of course, he says that to get us amped up. And in many ways, what our city has been through, what the nation, what the world has been through over the course of the past 18 months has been truly um, difficult and unprecedented and difficult. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with is what, what does good news look like for us here in Brooklyn, especially as New Yorkers, right? And I think even coming out of this, there's something about that New York grit, that New York spirit about like, hey, we're the ones, the remnant that stayed, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Like there's that feeling of like we're here and we're ready. Moreover, I've been meeting so many new people who have come in and moving to the city and there still seems to be this magnetic draw of what's happening in the city. And so I actually thought that I'd start with just a few quotes that I think capture the vibe of what it, lo- it looks like to actually live in the city. How many of you actually, you just moved to the city recently? Anyone, you just w- raise your hand. Yes. Welcome. Hey, we're so excited that you're here. And uh, today, what, uh, again, I want to just mention a few of these quotes that I think, again, capture the spirit of our city. Uh, here's a quote by Nora Ephron. Uh, Nora Ephron, a journalist and a filmmaker. Any of you watched Harry Met Sally before or Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah, it's all those people that were the pre-millennials. We all, we all watched that. Uh, some of you are like, I have no idea. I've never heard of that movie, which um, you should watch it. Uh, here's what Nora Ephron says about the city. She says, I look out the window and I see the lights and the skyline and the people on the street rushing around looking for action, love, and the world's greatest chocolate chip cookie, and my heart does a little dance. Yeah, I know some of you foodies in the room, you know what I'm talking about when it comes to New York City, right? Here's a quote by John Steinbeck, of course, the great American novelist. Here's what he says, New York is an ugly city. I take that as a compliment. (laughs) A dirty city. Its climate is a scandal. Its politics are used to frighten children. Its traffic is madness. Its competition is murderous. But there's one thing about it. Once you have lived in New York and it has become your home, no place is good enough. Hello, somebody. Yeah, Sharon is excited. There we go. Now, I know, though, we're in a unique borough, the most populous borough of New York City, which most people don't know. Uh, Brooklyn, here's some quotes about Brooklyn. Here's Alec Baldwin, y'all. Check out what Alec Baldwin said. He says, Manhattan is like Beverly Hills. Now, he's saying that kind of uh, somewhat pejoratively and, and meanly. And he says, and the soul of New York has moved to Brooklyn. Come on now where everything new and exciting seems to be, including Hope Brooklyn at Commons Cafe. (laughs) Yes, Uh, and here's Judge Judy. I don't know if you know, but Judge Judy. Brooklyn native, everyone. Here's what she says. People from Brooklyn grew up with a certain common sense. If it doesn't ring true, it's not true, right? 
we don't play those games that they play in Manhattan and elsewhere. And of course, Jay-Z, there's so many quotes from Jay-Z, but I just thought, mentally been many places, but I'm Brooklyn's own. Uh, now here's, here's a little secret. Uh, I'm a little bit of a poser here because I live in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I just wanted to fit in really badly. And, uh, but isn't it true? There's something about New York. There's something about being here and living in the city, and especially in a time like this, which is the greatest modern reset of uh, New York City. And uh, I was just thinking, uh, like the other day, um, I was thinking about like how, like how much New York pride I have. And I was remembering back that um, there was this moment when I was standing in Bryant Park, which is on 42nd Street, you know, in the city. And I remember just, like, just, I was in Bryant Park, and my son was on the, the merry-go-round there. And while he's on there, I just started thinking to myself, you know what, like, New York City is like the most influential city of the United States. Like, I think clearly. Like, no other city can make that claim. And I was like, I, you know, and Bryant Park is like, we're right in the middle of, of the city. And so I was just thinking like, wow, that's amazing. We're, we're like in the middle of the United States. And then, and then I was thinking, you know, New York City is actually, when it comes to like the rest of the world, of all the countries and the cities of the world, New York City is like the greatest city in the world. Right? Like, I mean, most friends like, yep, yep, yep. I know that, right? And so I just remember just thinking, like, I'm in the greatest city in the world. And then I started to think, you know, if, if we're talking about the greatest city in the world, like, why not stop? Why stop with Earth? Like, we're in the greatest city of the universe. <laughs> and uh, I just had this moment where I was like, and I'm standing in Bryant Park, which is kind of like the center of New York City. Like, I'm standing in the center of the universe. <laughs> and I just remember just having this sense. Now, most of us who are New Yorkers who have been here for a while, or you were especially born and raised here, you know this sense, this New York City pride. And uh, I actually thought that what, what does good news look like for us as New Yorkers, as Brooklynites, as people, especially in this next season of what we're looking forward to, what God might do. Uh, and I thought we'd actually look at this parable. It's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. Now, here's the thing. You might listen to this parable and you might feel a little bit kind of like, whoa, that feels like a very harsh parable to be reading about, especially uh, talking about all the good news that we have in Brooklyn. But stay with me here throughout this sermon. I'm going to invite you to. And I want you to, to, to get a sense of what does good news in Brooklyn look like? Uh, here's what the parable says. It's in Luke chapter 12. It says, and Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So Jesus is basically telling a story. A parable is like a story that um, illustrates a really spiritual dynamic truth. And so Jesus tells the story of a rich man. Now, get this. He's already rich, and he yields an abundant harvest. Now, something about the harvest is this rich man had nothing to do with it. It was a harvest that came to him just from the gods or from God, the sovereignty of God. He yields an abundant harvest. And look what happens. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said this, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, here's the thing. That story is a story of the American dream. It's the story that many of us, when we come to the city, or whether you grew up in the city, that's part that's in us, this drive to succeed, to build. And hopefully we can get to a place where we can yield an abundant harvest and build bigger barns. I mean, isn't that true? And yet here's how the parable goes. Check this out. But God said to him, you fool. Oh, snap. It's about to go down. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. 
then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, all of a sudden, there's this gut punch of like, this man, he doesn't even know it. He yields this abundant harvest. He's tearing down what he's got, and he's building bigger barns, and he's saying, I'm now going to take it easy. Now, here's the thing. We might read this passage, and honestly, there's other passages in Scripture, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, that talks about the wisdom of actually building bigger barns for storehouses, right? In midst of famine, what does it look like for us to save? And so one of the questions I think that this passage in this parable begs is this. Why in the world is Jesus knocking this man who simply wants to save his wealth for a rainy day and to do something that actually the wisdom literature actually calls us to? Well, what if, what if it wasn't because the sin of this man and what Jesus is calling out from this man is not necessarily the fact that he's saving because again, we've seen this in wisdom literature, what you do with your wealth, give, save, you spend. Like that's kind of the order in which we're supposed to do things. But notice, notice what it says in the passage that I think actually gives a greater clue of what Jesus is trying to get at, the sin that this guy is actually um, wary of, or what Jesus is warning against. Jesus told him this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And then in the original language, it actually says this, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, rest, uh, drink, and be merry. In other words, there's this clue that happens in the language where actually what this man is doing is he's basically saying, I will say to my soul as if I am the captain of my fate, the master of my own destiny. I will say to myself, because that's who I am. Now, the irony is dripping here, because here's a man who everything that he's gained is not due to his own kind of uh, ingenuity, his great talent. Instead, it's been an abundant harvest. It is because of God and his grace and his lavishness. And yet, the man has the audacity to actually say to his own soul, I've got this. Look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at how wealthy I am. And you see, this is what Jesus is speaking against. Now, this is why the lesson that Jesus gives is he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, what does that look like for us to store up things for ourselves, but not to be rich toward God? It's basically like this man, like so many New Yorkers, because that, isn't that the truth about our city? There's this pride that comes about us, and some of that is a good, healthy pride, because we're way better than Boston. <laughs> but, but there's that moment where each one of us, whether collectively or as individuals, this thing comes upon us, right? This, this self-centeredness, this idea that somehow... I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul. And here's what Jesus is speaking against. He's saying, you fool, don't you understand how fleeting your life is like vapor? And see, what Jesus is pointing out is he's saying, when you start to have a life that's oriented for your own ambitions, your own ways, your own New York sensibility, I can do this my way better than anyone else's way, when you begin to have that kind of heart, you're in danger of missing the point. And there's this thing that's always creeping around the corner called death that, that comes to every single one of us. And one day, and this is what death does, doesn't it? It has this clarifying effect on every single one of us. 
on what truly is important. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out. There's this book um, called uh, How Will You Measure Your Life? And it's a book by uh, a Harvard professor who recently passed away. He was known for his theories on disruptive innovation. And his name is Clayton Christensen. And uh, this book, which was actually stems from a course that he taught at Harvard Business School, which actually stems from uh, a kind of a write-up that he, he wrote, um, I think, in the Harvard Business Review. And it was basically this idea of how will you measure your life. One of the things that he noticed in his own life and journey. Now, if you know, if you read his, like, CV, his curriculum, whatever, uh, Vitae and all that stuff, if you read, this guy was this amazingly accomplished man graduated from the top university, went on to become a Rhodes Scholar. And one of the things that he notices and he describes about his own life journey was he said after, I forget which school that he had graduated from, whether it was a business school or his undergraduate, they had their five-year anniversary uh, as a school. And so they got together and he said it was amazing because after five years of graduation, there was this palpable energy in the room. As young people, they would share stories about kind of all the ways they had progressed in their career uh, some of them had started relationships and families. Then he said like 10 years later, they would get together for the next anniversary, like if it was the 15-year anniversary. He, he said he noticed they got together, but less people showed up this time. And right around now, though, people were starting to experience some of the disillusionment that comes with life. And he noticed that some of these marriages were going through rocky times. Some people were just starting to have children, and they were becoming overwhelmed with life. And then he said at the 25, 30-year reunion, people would get together. And he said some of his classmates were actually part of the significant uh, Enron scandal and white-collar crimes that had been kind of convicted. And so here he was now at his 30-year, 25-year, 30-year anniversary kind of with his, with his classmates. And what he says that he noticed about all of these classmates who had such a tremendous upwardly mobile trajectory for the rest of their life. They had married well, and beautiful people had beautiful children. They would tell stories of how they now were in settlement cases with their spouses who they've been estranged from, how their children had grown up to, be, to despise their parents because of how much, how much time they had put into their careers and things like that. And so what's fascinating is Clayton Christensen, when he writes this book, How Will You Measure Your Life?, one of the things that he noticed about most people, and especially using this idea of measurement, of you know, what is your profit and loss, your P&L reports and all that stuff. He says, well, what does it look like then for so many young people to have this dream to succeed and to drive and to get more and to be successful, and yet we end up losing out on so many of the things that when we look back on life, like those are the things that are important. And so he started to teach this course at Harvard Business School. And it was called, How Will You Measure Your Life? Not how will you measure your startup and you know, the way that you're going to scale this thing to have this become an exceptional business, but how will you measure your life? The things that really matter. And if there's anything that this pandemic has, I believe, taught every single one of us as human beings, at least at some point, has been we've asked this question, what, what is the sum of my life? What are the things that are really important to me? And here's the thing. As things start to open up a little bit more, and even as churches start to regather, it is so easy to lose sight of the true, real, good, measuring stuff that we all really long for. If I were to interview every single one of you and ask questions of what really matters in life, I believe that every single one of us would, would want to say the, the, the right things. 
But the reality is it's so easy to get lost in the race that is New York City, that is Brooklyn, that is us, to lose sight of what really matters. And you see what Jesus is saying in this parable is he's saying, like, don't you see, when you become, when you get so lost and myopic in your own vision for your own life, you've kind of lost your way. So what is good news for Brooklyn, though? Right? Drew, you've painted the bad news, but what does good news look like? Uh, there's a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr who, who actually talks about, as he, ta- as he um, examines different um, tribal cultures in Africa, um, where they have these uh, processes by which they have these rituals that people have to go through to, to pass into the journey of the, deep, the deeper journey of life. And really what this idea is, is what does it look like for each one of us to let go of all the things where as youth, we tend to cling to those things, success, upward mobility, you know, the cosmetic beauty and money and money, sex and power, all those things. And what does it look like for us to go into the real deeper journey? And as he studies these different cultures about what does it mean for us? And uh, as someone who also, as someone who loves the scriptures, he talks about these five truths that people are to embrace to truly transform into the deeper journey. And so these are the five truths that I'd like to submit to us today. And these five truths, again, they relate to this parable because these five truths get at what is true, what is real, and what are the things that we're to embrace if we too, in the midst of the hustle and bustle of New York life, can really embrace all that God has for us. So we're gonna go through these one by one. Here's the truth number one that he tells us of the deeper journey. Truth number one, Life is hard. Yeah, turn to your neighbor, give them a Wakanda forever, and say, life is hard. Can you do that real quick? Life is hard. That's right. Life is hard. One of the things he he talks about is how so many people, they go into life with this expectation that life is somehow going to be easy and up and to the right. Um, And yet, one of the realities that we're to embrace, truly, is this idea that life is hard. Now, here's the thing about Christian faith. If you actually read throughout Christian faith and even throughout the scriptures, a lot of the stories, in fact, most of the stories are not written to a people who are lavish and rich and have everything under control. It's actually people whose lives are falling apart. And so if you today feel like your life is falling apart, welcome to the club. Um, Actually, that's what Christianity is all about. But one of the things that we're actually supposed to expect about life is that life is hard. But here's the thing about faith. Whatever background, whatever spiritual background you come from, every single one of us would admit that faith, you know, when things are going well, that, that's not really when I need my faith to really stand sturdy. Because any kind of life philosophy or worldview stands up when things are going swimmingly well. It's really, when is life difficult? What, what is the mental furniture and the heart kind of orientation that can allow me to make it through some of the most difficult seasons of my life? And here's the thing about the Christian faith. What it offers is a life with God that in the midst of our most trying times, we can actually make it. In fact, we have the resources to make it as best we can. Now, one of those resources is this belief and this acceptance that life is hard. I was talking to a young 20-something at our church who just turned 20, and uh, he was telling me, and he's very open about his own bout with depression. And if you've read most recent statistics about depression, especially for young people nowadays, is skyrocketing uh, compared to previous generations. And so I asked him, I said, why, why do you think that is? What's been the case for you? And he said, you know, I think with social media, 
And I think with uh, so many of the narratives that I've been told as a young person, they've given me an expectation of life as being gleaming and full of highlights and beautiful. And then I experienced middle school, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then high school. And then college, and then he ended up dropping out of college, and he said, and I just, I, that, that mismatched expectation for what I was told that life would be like and what it has actually been has really thrown me off. I mean, isn't it true that in today's kind of hyper-visual world, we often think that everyone else is living their best life, and they're going on vacations and posting it on social, and we hate them. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry. If you do that, no, no judgment. No judgment. I, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, no judgment. But I mean, sometimes there's this expectation that everyone else's life is okay, but the reality is life is hard. Here's truth number two. Not only life is hard, no, truth number two, you are not important. Give your neighbor a Wakanda forever and say you are not important. Can you do that real quick? <laughs> We love to invest in marriages here at Hope Brooklyn, and uh, yeah, you are not important. You are not important. You know, sometimes I get so huffy. Uh, I'm someone who gets really anxious about having everything be right, have a, a tinge of kind of that OCD perfectionism in me, and um, I'm OCD about responding to every message and getting everything right. And yet, um, when things start to fall apart, I, I just, I, I get very dramatic about myself. Like, I, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening and this person, and Tina will say to me like, well, you, you, act like, you act like everyone cares as much as you do. <laughs> I'm like, they should care, they should care. Do they, they know how important this is and how important? She goes, and she, my wife will say to me, you know, you're, you're actually not that important. And <laughs> again, we want to invest in healthy marriages here at Hope Recommend. <laughs> You know, and it kind of reminded me, there was actually this church that I was part of. I was a pastor at this church for 10 years. I invested my blood, sweat, and tears at this church. Loved the church. Uh, through a season of depression and difficulty, I realized it was time for me to leave. And so I ended up resigning, and then I left. And it was my first foray into unemployment in a manner that... Um, I used to think unemployment was about money, which a big part of it was, but for me, it had so much to do with this dislocating feeling of like my identity was lost. And so here I was now, I was unemployed. And if you were to ask me, I, I probably wouldn't have told you this, but looking back, after I had left, what I really wanted was my old boss. Uh, his name is Pete Scazzaro. Eva, his daughter, is part of this church. Uh, <laughs> what I really wanted was for Pete to call me and be like, Drew, listen, uh, I know you felt called to leave, but like things are falling apart without you. <laughs> like we really need you back. I'm so sorry, like do you need a pay bump? You know, <laughs> like I, I really, that's what I wanted. Um, and if I were truly honest, and I feel honest, like sheepish sharing this as a pastor, but I kind of wanted the church to suffer a little bit. <laughs> like, cause I wanted them to know just how important I was, you know? 
So I remember a few months later, I actually met with uh, one of the elders at the church. An elder is one of the leaders of the church, like the council. And I met with one of the elders who I was really close to. I was the best man in his wedding. And I couldn't wait to meet with him. Um, not because it would have been great to only just catch up, which was great, as, of course. But I really was curious to hear how things were going. And so I remember meeting with him, and we exchanged pleasantries. And we started talking about our families. How's your family doing? How's your family? I'm like, oh, it's great. Then there finally came this opening in the conversation where I was like, hey, so, uh, hey, how's, how's New Life doing? The church is called New Life. How's New Life doing, man? And he goes, Drew, it's, it's been amazing. <laughs> Ever since you left, like, the church just kind of, just kind of exploded. <laughs> I remember he was telling me this, and I was like, praise God. <laughs> right, like inside, I'm like crying. And I just remember, and I was still unemployed at the time, and I was just kind of like, ugh, like, ugh. I mean, but it was just so funny, because I just, I saw myself as being so important, and like, I mean, but if you think about it, you know, and this is when the scriptures talk about how we are but dust. We are like, life is like a vapor. I mean, just think about all the things that we get anxious about today. But when we begin to embrace this truth that you are not important. Truth number three, not only life is hard, you are not important, but number three, you are not in control. Well, kind of forever your neighbor and say, you are not in control. Uh, this one is brutal. This one's brutal. I mean, I just, I just, I love being in control. I mean, one of my favorite moments in meetings is like we're, we're in a meeting and stuff and someone's like, hey, we should we should actually make a Google Doc about this, or a Google spreadsheet. And one of my favorite moments is being like, already did, you know? <laughs> like, because I just, I love being a planner, and I love having things under control. And yet one of the, the realities of things that we're supposed to actually embrace from God is you are not in control. Number four, life is hard, you are not important, you are not in control. Number four, life is not about you. Can you go ahead and Wakanda forever your neighbor and say, well, life is not about you. It's about the kids. It's not, no, I'm just kidding. Ah you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, life is not about you. Now, this relates so much to you are not important, right? But so ma uh, many times I think that life kind of revolves around me and around me and my wishes and my dreams. But what if I were to take a step back and be like, wait a minute, life is not about me. It's, what if it's about God and what God is doing? And this is what, yes, amen. Uh, life is not about you. I remember the first wedding I was in was my oldest brother. He, he was getting married. And so this was, the, you know, the first wedding. It was a, one of the first times I was wearing a tuxedo. And so we were renting tuxedos for the wedding. So my oldest brother was getting married. And I was, this was the first time that I was going to be one of the groomsmen in this wedding. And so I remember being, you know, getting ready for the wedding and so I just remember, you know, learning how to put on a tuxedo and um, the cufflinks and things like that and tie the bow tie and all that stuff. And I just remember, like, all the groomsmen and my oldest brother were kind of, like, we're all lounging in this room waiting for the wedding to start. And I just, I kept getting up and I kept looking in the mirror. <laughs> you know, I kept looking in the mirror and I would, like, fix my bow tie, made sure everything was okay. And then I'd go and sit down. And then I would do that again. Now, all the groomsmen were actually my 
uh, two of my other brothers, so there's four of us, so my oldest brother was getting married, the three of us were groomsmen, and then this other mentor who was older, and this was kind of like, he had been to a number of weddings before, and so his name is Edwin, and I just remember, I just kept doing this, getting up in front, and like, just kind of looking, and being like, you know, and then talking to my brother, hey, is, does this look okay, and everything, and then uh, I remember this guy, his name is Edwin, he came up to me, and goes, hey, Drew, I just, hey, let me tell you something real quick, he goes, hey, I uh, just want you to know, like, no one cares how you look. <laughs> and he's like, seriously, man, I, I, don't, I don't mean a doggy or anything. Just no one cares. And because uh, this wedding is not about you. Like, it really isn't. Wow, I got a hand clap over here. That's amazing. <laughs> he goes, and he, he says to me, he goes, and he goes, honestly, it's not even about Stefan, your oldest brother. He's like, it's not even about him. It's really all about the bride. So he was just saying, like, so I, just stop looking in the mirror, man. <laughs> no one's going to remember how you look. This is not about you. I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know what to do with that. But it was so true. It was like this moment of just crystal clarity. Like, yeah, it's, it's not about me. And yet how often we do this, we make things about us, the things that we get histrionic about or anxious about. And yet, what if we had this perspective of like, wait, it's, it's really about God and what he's doing. Okay, truth number five. So we got life is hard. You are not important. You are not in control. Life is not about you. Here's the last one. You are going to die. Go ahead, yeah. Hey, listen, go ahead, turn to your neighbor and say, you are going to die. Can you do that real quick? <laughs> yeah. Some of you are like, I hate this sermon. Uh, you are going to die. But isn't it true? Like, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. Um, we're all going to die. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's right. We are we're going to live. What are, we're going to live. That's what I was saying, guys. We're going to live. But it's, it's true, though, right? Like, we're, like I said, we're all vapors. We're all dust. We all... You know what's interesting about the teachings of Jesus? Is that Jesus would always... Again, these truths were inherent in everything that he would teach. And it, it was inherent in the way that he talked about even finding true life. Check out what Jesus teaches about finding true life. This is what he says. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, isn't that profound? Because, and, and you know what he's talking about here. He says, whoever tries to find their life will actually lose it. What does he mean by that? It's whoever tries to say, yes, I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my own soul. I will say to my soul, soul, be merry. Put up bigger barns, all that stuff. 
What he's saying is whenever each one of us become our own kind of, I am the most important, the life is all about me, this is all about me and, and how great I am and I'm gonna live forever and I'm immortal and all of these ways in which we make life about us. And what Jesus is basically saying is whenever we do that as human beings, that's when we've actually lost life. Because isn't it true that when those things become idols, they become the things that end up haunting us? And yet what Jesus is basically saying is, but those who actually lose their life will actually find it. Lose their life? What do you mean, Jesus? Those who have given up control. Those who have given up being the most important person. Those who have given up being the one who life centers around. Those who have actually embraced that perhaps the way to true life is actually to die before you die. I mean, that's why Jesus would consistently teach about taking up your cross and following him. He's talking about losing your life so that you can actually find it. I mean, but isn't this what we, all of us long for? We long for actually losing our life so that it can be found. We long for a freedom that comes from saying like, you know what, as much as ambition is important to me, and now I'm not trying to discount the idea of ambition and being upwardly mobile, but when that becomes the ultimate thing, isn't what all of us are longing for is this freedom to basically say, I have nothing to prove, but I am free from those expectations so I can actually approach life with, a, with like a joy and a buoyancy. For those of you who are parents in the room, Right? For you parents, as you think about the future of your kids and all the anxieties that those come with, what does it look like for us to actually give up control, to give up our sense of like, we need to make this happen, and this is a reflection of our own personal identity, but instead to be free from those things so that we could freely love our children and raise them the way that we're called to. Steph Curry actually has this quote, which I love. Steph Curry, he says, I have nothing to prove, but I have much to accomplish. Yeah, isn't that... Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news of Jesus that when we lose our life, we've got nothing to prove, but we've got much to accomplish? And so the source of how we go about our lives, our parenting, our relationships, our finances, everything really comes from this place where we've truly died before we've died. But we've died in order that we might truly live. Now, here's what the scripture teaches. It doesn't say that you're not going to die anymore. It says that we no longer fear death. And isn't that the kind of freedom and joy and power that all of us long for? There's this verse, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the one, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Today, my invitation to you and to me is to die before we die. And that in so doing, that we might find life and freedom and joy and purpose and power. What is good news for Brooklyn? Good news is that there's a savior who has come to live and die on our behalf, to set us free, to offer us the kind of life that we've always longed for, but it comes first by us surrendering to this God. Not by saying, I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul, but instead saying, not my way, your way, not my life, your life.